Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Heidi Hatch with KUTV2 News, joined in studio for this week's Take Two edition by Mara Carabello of the Exoro Group. Hello. Very excited you're here. I yeah, saw we're her right at, to it today. I saw her in the wild um, this week at the <laughs> mall. right. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. It was very exciting for me. And Senator Kirk Colmore, fresh off a legislative session. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me again. So always fun. There's uh, always big topics to talk about. But before we get to that, it's so exciting because I only see everyone in, I don't know, I know. Our, our little podcast room. And I never go to the mall and I went to the mall, I think, probably the first time in a year. And that's, I saw Mara there. That's and I was where like, we were, too. Yeah. yeah. We never go. We saw each other. I got really excited. It was a combination of seeing an old friend and seeing your third grade teacher that you didn't know existed outside of the third grade we're room, like, right? Oh, yeah. So it was very exciting. <laughs> With your husband and everything yes. shopping, uh, Mara made decisions. I did not. We were both looking at uh, sofas. And then mm-hmm. she bought when I didn't. It's true. Yeah. Exciting. It's hard. It is exciting. Sofas yeah. at the mall now. Sofas, yes. Yeah. Okay. Sofas at the mall. We are, I will say the Exoro group. Crate and Barrel yeah. specifically. Oh, okay. Yes. Not. Yeah. The Exoro group has been around for 20 years and in celebration, we're moving up a floor. Yeah. It's okay. big. Third floor. I thought we're going you were getting to your first couch. Floor. And I'm like. <laughs> and we, Ooh. I have let, my team is now going to have a place to sit. No. We're moving up a floor. So, you know, we got a fancy new couch from Crate and Barrel. I think you deserve it. Thank you. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and now that we've got that out of our way, there's all kinds of great issues to talk about. And I haven't even checked what the high gas price is today. But Utah set its all-time gas record price high yesterday. So I'm feeling bad that I didn't actually look it up. But um, there's a lot of talk about it. And I have been reading like crazy trying to figure out where do our oil prices come from, gas prices, and they're all complicated when you're looking at this as a state legislator, do you look at it and say, there's ways that we can fix things, change things, make them better? Or is this the free market? Is this war? What's the problem? Well, good question, because I'm not sure what we can do at the state level. Oil and gas is a global market. And so really, it's basic ec- economics at play here. This is supply. Uh, demand doesn't really change. So really, it comes down to supply. And I think this was an issue. We've seen this gas prices rising for the past year. And yeah. now it's accelerating, of course. So ultimately, this is a supply issue. The U.S. needs to implement policies that encourage greater supply here, greater production here. And I, th- I think ultimately, that's what's going to help. But at the state level, I'm not sure what, if anything, can really be done to to alleviate this burden when people are blaming the president right now and saying that it's his policies and day one coming in and shutting down uh drilling or new fracking whether it's in the four corners region or in the area of vernal in our state does that play into that or is it just political talk well i think i think ill-conceived energy policies and even ill-conceived COVID policies have led to this supply shortage and and even the workforce shortage and the supply chain issues and so i think there is some some blame there, but perception is also a problem, you know, and perception is reality for a lot of people, particularly in politics. And so, uh, right or wrong, the the blame is being put on the administration, and I, I think they need to do some stuff to address it. So, four thirty three a gallon uh, right now is the national average. Uh, Utah, I think the nation's um, hit a record high. Utah as well. Mara, right now, there's always the right and the left both do it, but they kind of give like fancy little names That's to make right. them we sound like good. naming yeah. yes we like naming things and i'm sure the democrats the republicans mm-hmm. each have a think tank that think of the things but right now it's putin's price hike mm-hmm. is it putin's price hike or is it our own problem because we haven't planned for the future and are not prepared hey putin's price hike is great marketing so i'm going to give some props to whoever in the comms department at the white house did that but at, but as kirk said this it, it, it is a larger global market i will say that um i do think that 
the one hope I have for a productive conversation is because this has been exacerbated, not the supply demand part, but actually the politic has been exacerbated by the Ukrainian issue. I think it leaves room for bipartisanship to talk about um, the, the issues. The, the oil industry has been a repressed asset market for a long time. That's part of the problem is that, remember, we intentionally slowed a couple of years ago. And so now getting that market up, what does involve Utah, not the government, but the interesting part about Utah is it has both extraction and refinement. And I do think that there are some refinement laws, and I know that there's some frustration if you looked at you know a, a unique supply chain with crude and oil, a refinement is actually, I think, closer to our problem right now. Now, so for those of us who are paying so much of the pump, who cares, right? Because it seems like a big deal. When we look at inflation, for me, what's interesting, and I felt like the legislature took a big step in this area, so I'm, I'm not suggesting they're not dealing with it. But when we look at the cost of living in whole, what I worry about with inflation, which I hope and join the chorus of the feds that thinks it still is probably relatively contained and hopefully relatively short. And when I say that, I don't mean to minimize the impacts that we're all feeling monthly, but hopefully this isn't beyond spring, summer, and we're not looking at this being years and years of inflation. What I think the state um, needs to keep their eye on is affordable housing, which has been a topic. So I'm not suggesting I'm the first one to bring this up. But when we look at the cost of living in Utah, what will hurt Utah is if we can't get a hold of our affordability problem with housing. And so you saw some investment by that by the legislature this year. It's going to take more than governmental underwriting, though. So looking at density, kinds of housing expectations, we have um, how to manage our growth. When I look at inflation, when I look at families worried about their bills, I see more opportunity in food and housing than I necessarily do maybe at the pump for the state. And I feel like they're all also interconnected because we're like, how do we get our food or our lumber to us? It's because we've got the gas and oil to get it to us or right. the plastics we have or the carpets we use. It's they're all they're all connected. And the interesting part is I've been trying to read and listen to podcasts and there's a million different people you can listen to and everyone yeah. has a different idea of what the problem is, whether, you know, it's nuclear in Europe that was shut down because Russia was trying to talk them out of it to make them dependent, or are we making the sweet crude that we should be using ourselves and refining and sending it to other right. places? So I feel like we're all this big learning curve trying to figure out, you know, why our gas prices are high because we love someone to blame. And yeah, we're, yeah, we're looking for someone. We're looking for someone. Putin is the Putin's answer right like, now to every problem, I, I believe. I do love alliteration, but I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, stop. I'm almost to the point where I'm ready to stop following the Democratic Party and the <laughs> GOP uh, National Party on yeah. Twitter and Facebook because it's this constant barrage of just stupidity. And I'm like, stop. This is my question. Who wants to hear that much from anybody? I'm always Not amazed because because as no. you, Heidi, I sometimes follow him. Perhaps you're the same way. I follow him sort of more for pro professionally than entertaining. Yes. And I get to this point where I'm like, who would like to hear from? I don't want to hear from my children this much. Like, I don't want to hear from anybody this no. much. About two years ago, I checked out of all political that's Twitter. Smart. It's only sports Twitter now. <laughs> that's See, smart. And that's really where Twitter shines is during sports. I think Correct. you're in the right place to be at. Because, yes, I've, I see one more thing coming out from the Democrats or the White House right now about uh, Biden's job growth being the biggest ever in history. I'm like, okay, well, we need to show a bar graph then that we may have shut down businesses and told people they couldn't work for a couple of years. Yeah. So I'm like, context is great. I think the Twitter world is not yeah. a great way to tell the stories. Look over here. Yes. <laughs> look at this. Look away. Well, uh, speaking of look at this, uh, Utah GOP caucus night uh, was this last week. And the caucus night used to be a pretty big deal in the state of Utah, uh, whether obviously more for the GOP than for Democrats. But it was going to be interesting to see exactly how this all shook out because it's been a four-year break because we had the pandemic, and so now we're back at them. Uh, first of all, Mara, are you planning to go to the Democratic caucuses, which still are coming uh, up on the Democrat, 22nd? Democratic caucuses are on the 22nd, so I'm, I'm, I'm not planning to go. You're to not planning to go. You. And I didn't go to last Tuesday night. It's been a it. This is a new, well, COVID out, right? We all, the, the delegates this year were four-year. I usually go to caucuses. I'll be honest, I usually go to both caucuses. That's how pain, uh, how much pain I want in my that life. That is a lot of pain. This year, I didn't go to either. I also will put a shout out to, it's interesting that the parties have decided not to caucus together. So for about a decade, they caucused on the same day. And the notion was 
remind everybody of the same night and the same situation yeah. and then just say, pick a place, right? Pick Republican, Democrat, but be aware that this is happening. But Democrats are open, right? Is that why? No, no, no. They just, they wanted to increase the turnout. And so they said, gosh, if we did it on the same day and we coordinated a little bit, yeah. you double your message. Like wherever you go, participate in the political process. This year, I asked both parties about why, and I got a surprisingly like, meh, I don't know, we just didn't. So there didn't seem to be any reason, but they didn't caucus, and usually that has been heavily supported by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who has often read over the podium, and it's easier to say, we don't care what you go to, but go on the 22nd or whatever the day is. And that coordination didn't happen. Um, I, I hear that the, the Republicans felt like their turnout was strong and good. Um, they have an open Senate race, right? Um, I Kirk's I, making a face. So I know. I, I thought it was like Well, I think it was normal. average. Right. Yeah, I've talked to a bunch of colleagues around the state, and some, I, I don't think the message got out there very good this year. And right. so we're expecting, a lot of people said because of the break there'd be big turnout, but a lot of the people I was talking to were concerned it was going to be very low turnout just because the message wasn't out there. And I think at the end it was just kind of, average for a non-presidential year. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I know the presidential year um, drags people out. And my interesting thing was because there's so many things going on that people are worried about. When you have things to gripe about, you want to get involved and want to talk about it. So I was interested to see if people were going to show up because of that, or if it's lost some of its sparkle and shine now that you can get signatures and get on the ballot, because the, uh, the caucus and convention system isn't the only way in Utah, and it used to be the only way. Uh, you went to your caucus night, I'm assuming. I did. Oh. I'm on the ballot. <laughs> You're on the ballot. <laughs> so you got to go yeah. and shake some hands. Uh, how was the turnout in your neighborhood caucus? It was good. So I've actually, I moved about a mile away from the last time we had caucus night. Ooh, so new I'm, precinct? New precinct. So this my first time participating in this precinct. So I'm not sure what the turnout was. In my prior precinct, I think the turnout was, was normal. And that's a pretty active precinct. And so it, it was about average. We probably had... 15 to 20 people in the precinct that I'm currently in. So I don't know if that's average for them or not, but it was an mm -hmm. okay turnout. Interesting. It'll be interesting. Conventional wisdom says incumbents are much favored by low turnout, right? Because you're getting sort of really experienced, if you will. Um, it's people who are proactively tracking on the date as opposed to someone who heard it and was like, yeah, let's go do this. Um, and that's an interesting prelude to some inner party races that we have, particularly on the federal level. For sure. And I have never been to a caucus night as just what? a citizen. I've been to them, but always working. Oh, reporting. Okay. And so I always wonder and look at a caucus or a protest or any kind of involvement or the city council. I go to these things all the time because right. it's my job and my job is to not uh, pick a side there. And I'm always thinking, would I choose to go to caucus night? I love covering them. I think they're interesting. But yeah, I, it's it's a choice for people because everyone has so much going on. You've got dance lessons and soccer lessons, just life happening. And you've mm -hmm. got to leave your home. You have to go talk to your neighbors, which sometimes isn't fun about politics, but um, I think it's a good grassroots way to get out there. I actually heard um, a young man who lives in my neighborhood, he's a senior in high school, I think he's a student body officer, and he's very excited to be voted a delegate. He showed up for his first time. So Nice. Yeah. I, do, I will say if you haven't been, and, and there's no hot political issue, if there's a hot political issue... Like, stay away. They're miserable, right? They really, like... They're like hours. It's so contentious. And you're contentious with your neighbors, which is, like, triple contentious. But, like, this year, there's nothing specific. I mean, there are little pockets, but there's nothing sort of arching. It's not like the Bennett where, where there's just some ruckus, or it's not count my vote where that was, like, you know, f take off the gloves. So if it's not that, there's sort of old school meet your neighbor talk about your community and one of the things that I do like is that it takes down the barriers the politics is bad and negative and you're real you're sitting close to people um, you hear people advocate for spouses and kids and their neighbors and there is something quite nice about meeting neighbors you don't know and collectively trying to do something good for the community I yep. do like that concept. I don't really want to talk guns and abortion with exactly. my neighbors because that's yeah. just uncomfortable. Yeah. But um, the to, your, to your point, Heidi, I think I think the demographics that show up to the caucus are not the people who have dance lessons and all that to attend. They do so seem older, it, don't you? It think? tends to be a little bit older or or much younger much trying younger. to get involved that don't have that going on. But mm -hmm. yeah. And I do like to see the younger people because I think it's important to be there even with um, the route of getting signatures. Uh, I do want to talk really quickly about the Democrats and what they're doing in a couple of weeks because Jenny Wilson was the most recent Democrat. We've already talked about Ben McAdams coming out and supporting Evan McMullen uh, running for U.S. Senate against Senator Mike Lee. Now, Jenny Wilson, who I think probably would be considered the highest ranking Democrat in the state right now with 
clout and power. She came out and said she endorsed him. And not only was she endorsing him, she was saying, vote no candidate at convention. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty wild that you have a top Democrat saying, sorry, we have nothing better to offer you. Please vote for Evan. Or is this just the new way we're going to do business? It's super wild. And it's, it's very telling that it's Mayor Wilson because she's not known for being like hugely in front on an issue. And she's not sort of traditionally known for taking these, you know, who cares? I'm going to do it myself. You know, she, she's sort of very measured about that. So it's highly unusual. Um, you know, if Greg were here, he would tell us how the Democrats have capitulated that they're going to lose. And I think that, frankly, one of the things you have to decide, though, is Democrats are anywhere between 25 and 35 percent of the voter, depending on where you live. And, and when you live in Democratic areas, clearly you're closer to, to 50, 60 percent. But I think the reality is the Democrats right now are having a hard time statewide. When you're looking at Jan Graham being the last statewide um, Democrat that was elected, I think there's a case to be made. But as you know, I'm a small party person. I'm a small P, not a big P. And so I say for those who gather around party because it's how they want the world to look and because it's not a brand they are mapping to, like blindly mapping to, but rather they're mapping to ideas, I think it makes sense that these Democrats are saying, hey, listen, I'm a realist here. I don't think anyone's going to win statewide. So I'm going to get someone who's closer to my values because the more I get moderates, the more I get people who are closer to my values, the more eventually people will be open to my party's point of view. So I think it's a realist point of view. I think, again, that comes from people who, if you put party over values, then you you hate this. You are like, you are a traitor to our party. If you are saying the reason I belong to a party is I share a set of values, and frankly, Evan McMullen's closer to those set of values than Mike Lee is, because that's her argument, right? He's closer to what I want, and I don't think. Now, it will be fascinating to see how many vote no candidate because the Dems do have a candidate on the ballot. Kale Weston, and I'm sure that he's not feeling very good because when you think about it, I can't, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think she thought she was going to win when she was running against Senator Mitt Romney. She was in it because she was building name recognition and she was out meeting people, and she wanted the opportunity if McAdams... um, moved on, that she would be able to take his seat. And I think she'd be pretty mad if someone in that same race was like, hey, come over here and vote. So what <laughs> do you think? That's exactly what I was thinking. From the candidate's perspective, I'm like, oh, man, that that's Rough. tough. You know, I'm going to be spending a ton of time, a ton of money. And like you said, I've got the biggest Democrat name and elected official in the state right now that's not even they supporting me the, and the yeah, endorsing me. It's like, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself mm-hmm. into now? So yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of rough. And I think that happened in the gubernatorial race too, when Jim DeBacchus was asking everyone to, you know, um, file as Republicans because, um, oh my gosh, I've just lost his Huntsman. name. Pe- Peterson. Oh. He was running oh, as yes, a Democrat, was, right? Yeah. And he, I think he was just not happy. We had them in studio one night together, and I thought there was going to be... It was rough, too, because he was running a terrific race, yes. and he's a very moderate... I mean, he, he's he's the perfect Democrat, because he is... Mo- I mean, he's very Utah, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a rough go. And Democrats are going to have to reconcile where they are. I mean, that's the big question is, where are you? What's your direction? What are you focusing on? You can't focus on an every, everything when you're only holding down 25% of the vote. Well, the strategy is interesting, too, right? Because Evan McMullen if he's trying to be the centrist just got a big endorsement from a democrat does that kind of help yeah Yeah. does does that even help in this you know yeah interesting because if you're trying to get more republicans to vote for you are they wondering you know how far left you're going to go uh speaking of the u.s senate race i've been looking to see who's getting their signatures in because i always think the twenty-eight thousand signatures is a really high bar and the more people you have gathering the higher the bar gets because you can't have duplicates you got to make sure they're all in and i have not asked senator lee's office um where they're at but i haven't seen any social media posts about how many they've turned in but becky edwards turned in um signatures Last night when I checked, 351 were counted and good to go. So I'm sure they're going through that process. Does that give Becky Edwards a leg up at this point? Do you think of the race or is Senator Lee's race to lose? I I think it's still Senator Lee's race to lose. I mean, 28,000 is a high bar for signatures, which probably means you need to get closer to 50,000 because of the number that are going to be tossed out. Tossed out. And at least at my caucus night, I was at Alta High School, all the precincts there. I mean, it was it was pretty strong support for Senator Lee. So, you know, whether whether or not he ends up getting the signatures, I think will be irrelevant because he's 
likely to come out of convention just fine. I think there's a lot of unsatisfaction with with Mike Lee and his representation. And I think the second you had three choices as an alternative, unfortunately, it leaves no alternative because of the math. And They're running in the same space. They are. And you can't split. You only have this... You. Even if you're really dissatisfied with an incumbent, you're mm-hmm. probably still looking at a 2 or 3% to keep him underneath, right? And you know he's going to do well in caucus. like that's, You know he's going to do well in the party situation. Mike Lee is going to work the party really well. And so I do think there was a shot for a single viable alternative that everyone, if it was bilateral, you either have Mike Lee or X. And the second you had three really legit exes, because you want to give them credit. They all have significant backgrounds. So Allie Isom, Becky Allie Edwards. Isom, Becky Edwards, and um, Emma McMullen. I mean, they all do, yeah. They all have the record that deserves being looked at for Senate, but the fact that you have three now, I think, makes it almost impossible for anyone to challenge. It is a lot. And just um, for keeping track of signatures, Blake Moore um, had 6,242 that have been counted and confirmed, and so he only needs 7,000, so he's pretty close there. And then a new name, I don't know Jake Hunsaker, but he's handed in his 7,000 signatures. I believe he's um, running in the 4th District, um, hoping to unseat Burgess Owens. So watching Cur- Curious that to me, Congressman Curtis did not elect to go for signatures. Right. You so. just made yeah. a cringe face. You think he needs to be? Well, I, I worry, if I like Representative Curtis a lot, you know, and I, to be frank, I have not looked into his challengers all that much yet. And so, um, but it's a great insurance policy, right? It and is. and, and just Curtis is very popular in this district. So I wouldn't think it would be unduly hard to have gotten those. I mean, it's a high bar. I mean, it is hard, but yeah, I think the, the thinking into not going for signatures is, Hey, I can I'm win over staying, the party yeah. and all that. And, and some of the delegates because of the, the signature route look look down or frown upon the signature yeah. gathering route. And so, you know, maybe it maybe it doesn't bode as well or doesn't do you as well to, to go get signatures if you're just trying to go the convention route. But I think the bigger the district gets, the less of a problem that is because then it's name recognition, it's standing on, uh, you know, your credentials and all that. And I think John Curtis does very well in that. So. I think it does, too. It'll be interesting. Yeah, we'll be watching that one closely. And the interesting thing, too, I don't think this is going to play a part, but when I was searching social media because I didn't leave the station on caucus night, I had other things I had to do. I was just looking to see what was up, and there were um, – probably just because of the people I follow and what I see retweeted, I saw probably half a dozen people who I think probably self-identify as Democrats but have uh, changed their party affiliation to Republican after um, the encouragement of Jim DeBacchus so they could be involved in the gubernatorial election. They went to caucus night and they're like, I was elected as a delegate because not very many people showed (laughs) up and they're like, I'm going to go, you know, wreak some havoc at the convention. So how many of them? I don't know, but there's that little rogue element in there in the Republican (laughs) Party now. So that'll be interesting to watch. While we're talking about um, some of our congressional leaders last night, um, that massive uh, spending bill was passed. Uh, part of that was going to be money going to Ukraine. And I was wondering if Senator Lee and Senator Romney were going to vote uh, just because they wanted their names on the list of people voting for that Ukrainian aid, but both Romney and Lee voted against it, saying they did not like the spending and the idea of putting you know pages and pages of stuff they haven't read and don't know where the money's going and then connecting it to the Ukraine aid. Is that the right uh, vote, you think? I think it is because this is what happens year after year after year is we just keep passing these huge bloated spending bills and, and not really knowing where it's going or what it's doing. And you put in a few things that, that people can all get behind or bipartisan and and then it passes. And so, you know, I, I know Senator Lee has often been the, the stick in the mud on these types of things in the past and been one of the lone two or three no votes on these types of spending bills. So I'm actually encouraged by seeing Senator Romney uh, uh, have that no vote as well and and really start to question and make other people question who might not have before. Like, okay, what what is going into these spending bills? And even looking at the articles, it's not super clear where it's all going. Yeah, it's right. $1.5 trillion. Yeah, I was a little surprised. I agree. I was surprised to see Romney take this position. It's a perennial position for Mike Lee, and it's sort of a... Um, a matter of positioning probably even more than policy for Mike Lee. But um, what was interesting is only 31 people voted against it. So in doing this, Lee and Romney also did not vote with their party leadership. And this was a keep the government open bill. We act like this was another, like, let's go spend money. Now, I'm not suggesting that keeping the government open is also a 
vague measure as well. But in addition to Ukraine, it had defense. It had the keep the government open measure. I am tired of us kicking the can down the road every six months because it doesn't allow for good policymaking. But I will say when you don't vote for this bill, the government shuts down. So I find it slightly irresponsible and much more political than policy to say, oh, we've got to stop this spending. I agree. But as soon as that vote needs to happen, if you're a serious minded senator, you best be talking about deficit right now and spending, which they don't do. They wait until the 11th hour again, and then they stand, you know, on on the sides. And I, I do think Biden for sure stuck several pork line items into this. And that's hard. It's hard to do when the party in power also sticks some random things. I think most people were for Ukraine. But we we were t- speaking of the spending bill as though it was random. It was also keeping the government open. Yes. Well, Which I don't is insane minim- how they do it, too. Yeah, it, go ahead. Is, I don't want to minimize the real effect that this has on federal government employees' lives. But I think the, the narrative out there is, is being less and less effective about shutting down the government. Because yeah. a lot of people are saying... Who cares? It, it doesn't make a difference to my life. And ultimately, when the government does reopen, most of those people are paid, you know, for the time that they didn't work. And so that threat is becoming less and less viable, if you will, or believed. And so, you know, I think it, I think it is time that we start looking at these this spending a little, little more close and not just have this threat of the government shutdown because less and less people are worried about that. Yeah, but I would still challenge him to have that conversation on policy grounds, not on bill grounds, right? They're still waiting, doing the boom and the bust of when the bill shows up and having the discussion. I feel like it's part of, I just, the gamesmanship that's played right now with who's in charge of the parties, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or who holds it up. And, you know, maybe there's power that comes from that, but it drives me nuts when we want to be this, you know, greatest nation on earth that we literally wait until our bill is due. And we're like, "Hmm, I wonder if I should walk it across the street to to the (laughs) landlord's office or no, I don't know. So it just makes no sense. Plus those bills are so massive the way they spend them. Nobody can read those. I don't care how many interns and how many hours you have. This one was 2,000 and something pages. I mean, it's an, it's an impossibility. And and I encourage an attorney, but it's legal anyone budget, has but read yeah. that far, and not, there's a comprehension level ceiling to everybody where you're like, I don't know what this is talking well, about. Well, there is, and, and reporters don't even try to get to the bottom yeah. of it anymore. I read a number of articles trying to figure out what the heck the spending was, and it was just broad things. Like you right. said, it was oh, military funding and... Mm-hmm cybersecurity defense and Ukraine. And right. that was about it. Yeah. And I was looking for the same things. And I really don't know that. I mean, I'm a reporter. I haven't gone in and read it, but I think the national reporters probably have a responsibility to be going in and looking through that. But I think you just take the talking points from the party and they send these six bullets and they're like, this is where the money is. And right. this is why we hate the other guys. And then nobody actually reads it because who wants to read 3000 pages? Right. Not me. Um, Mitt Romney also this week has been very out spoken against uh, President Biden, and he was saying that he didn't want to send any MiGs, uh, that it was really the U.S. kind of getting involved with uh, Russia more than we wanted to be. But Mitt Romney came out and pretty strongly said, we need to get them over to Ukraine as soon as possible, whatever it takes, if we need to fly some to Germany and then fly them back to them. Do you feel like that is taking the U.S. into a more hands-on or war-on-war with Russia, or is it just what we need to be doing? I think it is taking us, but I want to maybe back that up a little. I I hate the false choices sometimes that we're bringing up right now. So there's a question about are we being hawkish enough? Um, I think we're all looking back, which is the easy thing to do, and thinking, gosh, I wish we would have been more proactive in Georgia and Crimea, and why, and and Putin's a bully, and this isn't going to stop. And the the question is, how do you deal with bullies? How far do you push a bully? And, um, but but I will say, for me, it seems inevitable that you don't send fighter jets in and around the area <laughs> if you're not going to use them. So I, I, I am not for the notion of, why don't you just hang out close and see what happens? I am for the notion of getting serious about, is it time to intervene or not? But I don't like when the government lays out these sort of in-between choices that I think aren't clear statements of where we are from the United States. And so um, I think when when... Romney speaks of being more hawkish. I think that's an interesting and timely conversation. But when they speak of like, why don't we just sit over here and see what happens? No, I mean, it would be the response that inevitably we will enter a war. I do think it would de facto result in us being in the position to have direct conflict with Russia. And when we're in direct conflict with Russia, we're there. So let's be there if we're going to be there or let's stay where I'll have to say Biden has consistently been 
We're not doing that. He reiterated again this morning. He reiterated yesterday. I'm not sending troops. I'm not having direct conflict. So the Biden administration has been clear on it. I don't like the cute measures that keep us somewhere in between. I don't think they're genuine. I think, like you said, Mara, there's not much we can do about the past now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I would note that it was Mitt Romney, what was it, a decade ago or so that that said that Russia was our biggest threat right. and was laughed off the stage over it, you know, but turns out he was prophetic in that. But I, I tend to agree with you now that if we're in this, we just got to go all in. You know, we can't, we can't be waiting on the sidelines. And I'm not sure that that's the right policy right. just yet. Right. But as soon as we start sending planes over, we're in. the perception is we're in from Russia regardless. And so if we're going to do it, we need to take care of business. But I'm not sure at this point that that's the, that's the right thing. And, right. you know, there, there's a lot, it's super unfortunate. There's a lot of humanitarian crisis going on. There are people dying and... Um, you know, if, if, if we're not going to be an interventionist state, then let's stay out. But as soon as we're in, let's, let's get it done and let's take mm -hmm. care of business yeah. and let's end this. I feel like it's a lot like the oil issue right now where you're, there's so many different little pieces to the puzzle. And I think the problems have been coming not just for the last year or the inflation or war right now, but it's decades of decisions that have been made by our country and our other countries. And then you're looking at the war too. I don't think most of us really understand Russia or Ukraine or what's happening in China. We know the surface level things, but there's so much to understand about decades and decades and even hundreds of years of what's gone on there and everything that happened. And like you said, you know, we didn't talk much about Syria or Crimea or Georgia or all these things that are happening. And the one person I've been dying to sit down and talk to is a former governor and ambassador, John Huntsman, because he has an interesting eye to those right. things. And when I talked to him about a week or two, probably two weeks ago, I think he was kind of wanting to stay out of the fray and not talk. And he said, I'll let you know when, when I'm ready. But he um, accepted an award in Minnesota for trade recently. And uh, Mary Kay posted the talk. I don't know if you've got, you guys have listened to it. I'll share it if anyone wants to listen. But I don't think they thought it was getting recorded and they were just there accepting the award and answering questions. But it was really interesting listening to their perspective where they've lived in these countries. They understand what's happening and maybe understand the mindset of Putin more than most of us. Most of us have not had dinner or s sat across the table with him and understood the issues. The long table. The super long, long, the table. super long, yes. creepy table where there's no <laughs> no spit splatter anywhere near you. But uh, it's an interesting conversation about Putin's mindset and that this, because I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, he's going to get tired of this. He's going to walk away. And uh, Huntsman, when he talks about this, he's, this is not, this is the end of Putin and Putin's going to go big or go home. And, so it just makes you worry about, you know, what we do as a country to, I don't know what, lessen here, the Here flow. is my silver lining, though. For the first time in a handful of years, I am seeing Washington have handfuls of bipartisan, serious-minded people going, no, we're heads are together. Because I think Kurt alluded to the fact that we as observers to those who we have elected need to stop asking them what's right and wrong. Things are not that e easy. And um, I am seeing bipartisanship prevail. Not in every instance, inevitably they can't resist a little bit of sh shooting at people. But there are, we have um, the foreign policy experts on both sides of the aisle who do seem to be keeping up every day. And what's challenging right now for me to want to say we take a specific action is the situation is still moving. Usually I think when you want to look to take an action is right before it stops and that's hard to predict. But the situation is so fluid right now, I can see why policymakers are still taking an incremental approach. Yeah. On, on a different note too, this, this war is so much different than anything else we've ever experienced because it's so it's so real. I mean, my kids show me TikTok videos where you can actually see refugees in, in uh, Ukraine fleeing or, you know, troops that are marching down streets and stuff like that. And with social media, with the Internet, like it's much more real than, mm -hmm. than it's ever been. And it's, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's hard to see. It's hard to put yourself in that position. Absolutely. And I think that's changing it because, I mean, even if you look back to 9-11 or just other, you know, major things that kind of pivoted the world, there was a lot of video that came off the streets of New York City because there's tourists out there and had cameras, but they were like big old cameras on their shoulders. You know, people didn't have cell phones. And so everything that we've seen in the past from uh, war, when you're looking back to, you know, Desert Storm or Afghanistan or um, looking back to Vietnam or, you know, even World War II would have been so different if we saw the videos on the ground when they're and, happening. I'm and sure. edited. Right? Yeah. You know. And this is real people in their homes or driving down the street or whatever. And so it's, 
it's interesting and it's hard mm-hmm. to see some of those Russian troops who you know are just kids and right. that that makes the enemy the quote unquote enemy even more real too which right. is hard I know. I feel so sad, too. I actually was watching um, a video, and it's hard to know what's real and what's propaganda these days, but it was a video where someone translated it, and it was a bunch of moms that I think had shown up to where some Russian office of some sort where they were yelling at a, about their sons because they'd all sent them to whatever they thought they were, you know, little practice on the border or whatever. And I don't think most of these young men had training. I thought they, I think their parents sent them off thinking they were staging and they're in like some grown-ups clothes that are too big for them and they didn't know they were sending their sons off to die into war. And so I think that there's some of that going on too where you've just got all these young kids that aren't there because they believe in something or they, you know, signed up for it. They're just dying by the who knows how many numbers um, because they're involved in Somebody else's war. Yeah, somebody, somebody else's, else's war. war. So, yeah, lots yeah. of families to be sad for. Well, bringing it back home close to home, when we were ending uh, last Friday, we were talking about the transgender bill, which we thought was not going to happen. It had been circled on the calendar. It was gone. And then these rogue senators <laughs> and members of the House were like, you know what, this last day, let's stay till midnight and uh, let's get people talking. Uh, how did you vote on that bill, Senator Cullimore? So I voted for the bill. But let me preface it by saying the bill, as it moved through the entire session, was developing this commission that would look at transgender athletes on a case-by-case basis. And the reason for doing that is, one, it's more personal, but two, frankly, it's more legally defensible, right? An all-out ban is likely to be overturned by, by an appellate court, Supreme Court, whatever. And so the thought was, well, let's, set, let's establish this commission because we can establish a, a legal, rational basis for doing this for the safety of the transgender athlete, for the safety and health of the other athletes, for the integrity of the sport. This is more in line with Title IX. And so the thought was that by establishing this commission, and, and there was some stuff in the commission that Equality Utah didn't love, and the conservatives definitely didn't love the idea of the commission. They just wanted the all-out ban. Um, you know, there, there was stuff that both sides didn't like. And so in my, my purview, even though I didn't have anybody telling me, yeah, go vote for this, whether it was my conservative base or the liberals, I thought, well, we've probably found a, a pretty good middle road if nobody really loves this bill, but it's moving, th- moving the ball. Um, unfor- for whatever reason, I don't know that we were going to get the, the votes to get that commission done. And ultimately what was said is if, if we want to put the commission in there, then we want it to be the default after an all-out ban. And, and uh, that's, that's what was needed to, to pass the vote. And I voted for it, but it was with the expectation that likely the ban would be overturned because we recognize gender identification and sexual orientation in Utah as a protected class. And so I thought that wasn't going to be upheld, so it would default to this. Of course, you've got in the back of your mind the whole equation of, is the governor going to veto this, which I thought was a strong possibility. So my hesitation in voting for it was, well, this just gets vetoed, and then we're back here next year dealing with this same, with this same topic. But, um, you know, frankly, the public that I was hearing from, that's, that's the direction that they wanted to go, despite those legal reservations that I had. Do you think the governor's still going to veto? I, I have every reason to believe that he will. He said he will. So, yeah, yeah, he said it multiple times, yeah. and he said it right away. Yeah, he so, said it live on our newscast yeah. right after the vote happened, within right. minutes. Yeah, yeah, and was pretty clear in a way that's hard to to roll back. So I, I'm sort of really exercised about this bill in a way that I'm not usually. I think it lacks merit on all three areas that I look at it. it the bills I think need to have merit, and the first one is it feels like a solution in search of a problem. Uh, the U, the Utah State uh, Athletic High School Athletic Association didn't ask for it. It didn't come from an institution. The institutions have rules in place. The rationale is largely placed on elite athletes in um, high schools, I mean, excuse me, in colleges and in the Olympics, and yet the solve they're going for is children. And so you don't solve elite athlete problems by targeting children. And so I didn't, I didn't see an outreach. When we look at those uh, transgender kids who have even been in these discussions, you're looking at maybe three or five in the state of Utah. So to start out with, from a conservative legislature, I have no toleration when they legislate without a problem. So it didn't pass a merit test of there being an actual problem. Second, the evoking of women athletics in this, I just felt like lacked understanding and regard. So I'm from a family who deeply believes in sports. I love sports to develop character. And again, I want to repeat how clearly this is a bill about children. It's not a bill about elite athletes. 
the Olympics have gone through this questioning. So have colleges and high schools. So has Title IX. Like, there's a discussion to be had about adults and elite athletes. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about children. Children in a session where I listen to over and over these same legislators tell me they're protecting their children in many ways that I don't think are protecting. But you're afraid of them reading a book that's offensive, and yet you're not afraid of completely marginalizing them as people. I found that just reprehensible, which I'll get to in a minute because I think that has Mara more to do with human. Issue. She I usually, am like, gets fired so up about guns. fired up about this. So then the second was about women athletes. This was all all in the name of female athletes. I have a daughter right now who's looking at playing athletics in, in college. I played in college and high school athletics. I deeply believe in this. I think one key thing that's happened to children is participation in athletics. So the premise of this bill was protecting them physically, right? The physicality. There was a sense of unfairness about the matchup. To which I say, okay, if you're being genuine about that, then the commission should actually talk to anybody else in the 95th percentile. If you're worried about someone being stronger and faster, if that's really, if it's not about being anti-trans, if it's really about a non-physical matchup, but that's also ridiculous. What we know about sports is you're benefited by kids who play better than you. We have, she's on the what high school. What if it's like a track race and you can't win because they're like faster than you? Oh, my daughter currently plays with the number one basketball player in the nation. My daughter can't match up against. She's unbelievable. She played with the number one lacrosse player who now plays for do or who now plays for um, for Navy, and she's crushing it. She is so strong. She is so fast. And I know you're going to say, but it's not. If you want to protect my daughter, that's not how you do it. My daughter one is strong and doesn't need protection. Female athletes don't need protection. But you're missing out on the bigger point of high school athletics. The other thing when we want to talk about elite Senator athletes, Senator might need protection on the way out like, the door. Here, elite <laughs> athletes don't express themselves. I think this is this is the travesty of our sports system in America right now. You join a comp team. If you're wanting to be recruited into college athletics, it doesn't happen on your high school team very often. There are a few exceptions, and those exceptions are all boys. But why we continue to celebrate if a boy is big and strong and tough, and we don't care if they don't match up, this didn't understand girls' sports. And then thirdly, the strike against it was how inhumane it was. This was fear-driven. This was hypocrisy-driven. And this is unadulterated bias, particularly, as Kurt said, well, when it moved into a ban, you have the markings of bias. And I just say, in a state that spends a lot of energy on protecting children, you cannot look at me and tell me this was protecting children. So... Go back. What was your first point? I, My first I, I point is there was no, there's no merit to it. I don't think it, I think it's a solution in search of a problem. So the, the counter to that is that, yes, there was one transgender athlete last year. There, I've heard reports from anywhere from 4 to 11 this year. This is saying, let's address this before it becomes a bigger address problem. Address what? Next that year, they're it trans? Could be 50. They, they, well, didn't have a, they didn't have a physical matchup. What they're addressing is how many people identified as trans, not that there was a problem with them competing. How is that not discrimination? Well, I think, I think some people, a, a good majority of people, do have a problem with them competing. If you look at the Penn swimmer, I don't think anybody yes. can look at don't, that and say that's not blatantly unfair. Don't send me unfair. to college when you're talking about children. But there if are you want to talk about the University of Utah, knock yourself out. Then talk about the University of Utah. But you legislated but children. There are high children. schoolers bigger than me. Right, but you legislated children. Every child in Utah is subject to this. A trans kid who is in fourth grade is subject to this. But Would you lose college opportunities if you didn't have a chance in high school. I just wonder if that might be part of the Of course you would, but they're still not speaking to the physicality of the issue. This wasn't to fourth grade soccer. This is for- This was. This is for every kid who plays sports in Utah system. It didn't specify high school. This is for any girl, and you don't care about the boys. My so this is girl this was for state-sanctioned sports, right? Not which, club sports and, and stuff like that. Absolutely, so. it's it's our school system. So it's JB our tax-subsidized school system. So probably, and junior high. Yeah, are there junior high sports now? I don't know. Depending Maybe. on where you they live. Might be. But the point being, you're, if, if the premise was there's a physical matchup problem. And the High School Athletic Association, which the legislature is charged with looking at this, and they have, and they didn't identify a problem, 
why is it that only, you know, that, that a representative whose bona fides are that I'm on a referee and I'm a female, of which I'm also a referee and a female. So the bona fides were that you're protecting somehow girls because they're worried about a 10th grader who won't match up. And again, the physicality of girls is all over the place. I, I just think if, you know, you but put I, lipstick I on a got, pig, it's still a pig. I think you have to recognize, though, that the physicality of a male in general is going to be more physical and there's more brute force, more speed. We all know that trans kids are required under the law currently to have started the, the transitioning process. And that's right. where so you take care of hormones. In some respects, this was even better because it did not require that. Right, it did not force them to go through the gender transition. It's such a red herring to suggest that these are boys trying to secretly match up against girls. One, that indicts girls at a level I don't, I don't appreciate. And two, again, you the premise continues to be that it's elite athletes, and that's not true. We told trans kids in the state of Utah that we have a bias and a prejudice against them, and I think that's horrible. So the governor's going to veto. What happens now? The legislature will come back and get a commission going, or what happens now? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I would be surprised. I, I don't, I don't want to put my thumb on this yet, but I would be surprised if there's will to do a veto override on this type of a bill. And it probably depends on how many other bills, if any, are vetoed. You know, because once you get in that veto override mode, maybe that's true. Throw maybe, another in. Yeah, throw <laughs> some in. But if we don't veto override it, then I, I don't know how we don't have to address this year after year until something is is figured out, or maybe as Mara says. It's, Five years from now, and we haven't accomplished anything, and there's not really any Or perhaps we could give it to experts and let them do it, which is already what we have in place. I think it's inevitable, and you said this, it's inevitable that it will come back. If it's not veto overridden, um, or there's an attempt at it, it will come back in the next. Yeah, and Hmm. I would say there's probably not, maybe there weren't uh, the the athletic experts involved in this, but there were legal experts saying this commission might be the way to go. And and I think Equality Utah was engaged in that and, and could see some promise in that so you know maybe we're addressing the commission again next yeah, year. yeah but i'm just saying next time the conservatives lecture me about too many laws on the books and the democrats doing too many i'm gonna say there's so many things to solve why don't you solve things that don't include hypocrisy and fear okay well there was one bill that we're out of time so we have to be quick but I, there was something you want to talk about on a national level and i wanted you a chance to tell us sometimes we get so wrapped up in these bills like the transgender bill that kind of takes all the limelight and sucks all the oxygen out of the room there's other things happening that uh, matter and the digital asset bill was one of your favorite parts of the session what does it do and why should we care so the digital asset bill recognizes digital assets in the state of Utah, lays out some uh, definitions, and then basically just says, we recognize these, you have the right to own these, you have to have the right to transact these. And then there was another bill that set up a task force to come in and look at this so we can build upon this. The reason why I'm excited about this is Web3, um, digital assets, blockchain technology, and all that, that is, that is coming. And I, f- I feel like we're in 1993 with the internet. That's where we are with Web3 and blockchain technology. And I think that if Utah can be the leader on this and get uh, be the forefront of this with laws that recognize this, laws that establish some parameters that business can operate within and that consumers can have some confidence in, it's going to bring a lot of economic development to the state of Utah. And we've got the ingenuity, we've got the tech, we've got entrepreneurship, we've got the uh, private investment. So I think I think we're really well situated to be a leader in that, not just nationally, but globally. The reason in my mind this is so important is that anachronistic people like me who want to bury their hands in the heads in the sand because they don't understand the crypto world or or they take a blanket environmental impact statement, which is where I am. So meaning not thoughtfully considered. The reason this is so important is that as Senator Colomore knows, new issues and complex pieces of law need to have really good law proffered, and then they need to be revised because the complexity of them. So Utah is highly advantaged in tackling these issues right away and then continuing to refine them. And that's what happens when good laws are put in place. The refinement doesn't mean the law was bad. It, in fact, particularly on new issues. I also think this is a really nice way to get into general legislation that we still need to tackle about the digital world. Because this is grounded in financial policy, I'd rather have it sit in that section of code, figure out some things, because we still have to tackle social media. We have to tackle speech at a digital level. We have to tackle our digital lives that we're headed to and i and i I think this is um great so interestingly digital assets aren't necessarily currency right and so originally when i drafted this bill it was under the financial code it's under the department of financial institution we moved it out of there 
And we didn't even move it into property law because it's not personal property as we typically <laughs> consider it. You know, so the Uniform Commercial Code doesn't necessarily fit exactly or apply to that. It's cryptocurrency is not actually currency, so where right? Does it so live? it's digital assets. So we put it under, we created a brand new chapter, put it under the commerce title. And so we're looking to build upon that. So it's, it's really a brand new space. As you so this saying. is like Space Force. Do people yes. pay taxes on crypto? When you Only if you translate it, it yeah. to currency. Yes. But yeah. otherwise it just sits as a n- nameless. It's a digital asset. It's, but digital assets aren't real kind of from our terminology. It's not in tangible, the financial. but. Huh. Yeah, yeah, all it's right. different. I don't understand that stuff at all. I, I really need to <laughs> dip my toes in up I to my ankles too. and really start understanding it. <laughs> okay, uh, really quickly, on the national level, you were excited that a bill passed um, 100 years after the fact, and let me get the official name. Uh, Congress passed the Emmett Till bill to make lynching a hate crime. Let me just say why I think this was interesting. I think that what's fascinating about it is we've had over 200 bills on this topic um, put forth in the 100 years. So I, I, I'm not going deep on the the bill. I think I, I think let's just stipulate that nobody wants lynching. So I'm not I'm not trying to bring that issue. And it was a bipartisan bill. It passed unanimously. It was actually offered by the South Carolinian um, Republican Tim Scott brought the bill. So it was bought by and and Cory Booker brought it. So it was completely bipartisan. I think it is interesting though because it does the last recorded lynching in the United States was in 1981, and um, but there have been tries at recorded lynchings as as early as the early 2000s. It does develop. I'm I don't not, I'm not sure that Senator Colmore will like this. It does develop a line of thinking about um, have we gotten rid of lynching in America, and how does that dovetail what we would colloquially call hate crimes laws that are that are newer, that are perhaps decades old instead of hundreds of years old. I should have en- ended with our. Um non-fungible tokens because you guys agreed on that this one uh, you disagree on why is that well i obviously i don't disagree about lynching (laughs) uh, discrimination you know people shouldn't be targeted because of any immutable characteristics or anything like that so i I don't disagree with that what i do have concerns with is when the fed starts stepping uh, into federalism issues and creating laws that have been uh, historically relegated to the states and so these types of crimes should be should be dealt with at the state level I have reservations about hate crimes because at the end of the day, I think all victims are, you know, should be should be created equal. And so these types of crimes try to get into the psyche of a perpetrator. And I'm, I'm not sure legislation is the best way to do that, you know, but um, I so I hesitate to elevate some victims over others. And, you know, the 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 group that may be targeted changes, you know, from decade to decade or, or even over time. And so uh, I've got federalism issues. I've got you know, diminishing or minimizing certain certain victims over over others, and so th- that would be my my concern. But I need to look into this a little bit more because it, it did have unanimous support, as as uh, I think you said. And you know, I think it's important to note too that although it's called the lynching, it's not just strictly lynching. That, that no. the bill does target all crimes that lead to death or serious bodily harm that can be defined as a hate crime. Right, and we are developing a field. I mean, the data behind bias is clear. So I I don't think bias is more, I think there is a data analysis interpretation of bias, not just opinion. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, this has been. Talking about We've serious up to the issues. level. Yeah. Yes, we have. Thank I you, know. Senator, and for I, upping our level. I always a think we're going to be here for 30 minutes in and out, <laughs> but there's so many things to talk about these days. So thank you for making time out of your busy days. Hopefully, uh, this helps people listen and think about the topics outside of what they normally uh, think or hear, because sometimes we live in our little social media echo chambers where we only follow people who think the same way we do. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends about us and have a great week.